It is truly a wonderful opportunity for you and I to be able to think about worshiping God in spirit and in truth, John 4.24, and to lift up our voices and our thoughts and our prayers, to do so in that wording of 1 Corinthians 14.15, in understanding and in spirit. And certainly as we have sung some beautiful hymns today and have communally brought our thoughts in prayer to the great God of heaven, may we now allow him to speak to us by the usage of his word, and might I direct your attention then to this lesson. It is the 13th one in our series of studies on the subject of premillennialism. The 13th one I've entitled, Biblical Contradictions of Premillennialism. We have labored at length to give some fair consideration to this subject that is the enamorment of so many in our world. Those who look with such excitement and in fact with such honesty in many cases to these matters that supposedly will transpire as the events of time roll to its conclusion. As you can see on that, we have looked at a number of matters including what is supposedly called this interesting rapture, a tribulation that's supposed to be a time of seven years of great and terrible difficulty partly because all the saints will be gone. We've looked at that thousand-year millennium. As we have looked at each and every one of these matters, everything from the binding of Satan to the thousand-year reign, everything in between, we have found that none of it in its detail has been bolstered by, supported by, and taught by the Word of God. In fact, the Scriptures teach a very different scenario. And as we draw near the conclusion of this series of studies... I thought it wise, perhaps, to devote one lesson to the entitlement of Biblical Contradictions of Premillennialism. If you thus had to select, perhaps, a very few points and list these as the critical matters which contradict what premillennialism says, today we will look at some seven passages and try to lay some emphasis upon each one of them and embed in our hearts the issues as to how these are so different than what premillennialism sets before us. As we've often noted in this series, so many in our world have accepted this premillennial idea partly because it's captivating, it's enthralling, you can weave an impressive story around it. There's only, of course, the critical matter, it's not God's story, and it's not that which He has set before us. With those thoughts in mind, what are some passages that you and I might bring to the forefront of our thinking that will help us see the mistaken error of premillennialism. Let's start in Matthew 20, verse 28. On that occasion, we find Jesus in such an eloquent and powerful way pointing directly one interesting reason as to his coming to this earth. We noted early on in our studies in premillennialism that it lays such a great emphasis on Jesus coming to reign on David's throne in Jerusalem. And that supposedly the Christ was to position himself as coming so that he could be a king and others would in fact minister to him. Listen to what Jesus said though in Matthew 20 verse 28. He said, Even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And oh, the interesting comfort that that has brought to so many of us as we appreciate the fact then that the Lord Himself said, I did not come, that others may in fact minister to me as an earthly king. We understand He is a king. He's the spiritual king over His kingdom, the church. But He didn't come so that everybody could in fact ride before Him and process in such a way that He's an earthly king. He said, I came to minister. 
He came to serve. And he came, in fact, to give his life a ransom for many. Might we ask this question, how many kings throughout all the history of the world have given their life for the citizens of their kingdom? How many kings have ever voluntarily given themselves for the betterment of those that would be their citizens? To my knowledge, there hasn't been one, but yet Jesus did. Because in his spiritual kingdom, you and I, without him, were those that were greatly without. We did not have the access to heaven, for we were encumbered with sin. But Paul affirmed in Romans 5 eight, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ, you see, came to give his life a ransom. That ransom he paid for you and I couldn't pay it. When he paid that ransom, you and I have access to heaven. Premillennialism would struggle with that text. But that's not the only one that we might notice in light of it. That emphasis that's so often laid upon earth and this pristine utopian paradise that is supposed to be here at some future point during that thousand years, you'll notice on other occasions, Jesus, didn't he say, my kingdom is not of this world, John eighteen thirty six, And Peter so directly wrote in Second Peter 3, beginning in verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. We see then, then the question that follows, seeing then that all these things should be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? The emphasis throughout the New Testament is on the realization that you and I, while here for a while, are stewards of this place. It is not a permanent habitation, for we look for a country far better than this. We look for a place described in Hebrews eleven sixteen, in Hebrews 11, verses 9 and 10, and the premillennialist struggles then with laying all the obsessive interest upon this physical planet. Jesus directed our attention, not here, but elsewhere. What else then might be a text to which we should turn our attention? In John 5, verses 28 and 29, we come to a scene in which the Lord himself in speaking addresses a monumental thought. Might we at least introduce it with these words? The premillennialist, remember, says that there is 1,007 years between the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked. Over a millennium separates them according to premillennialism. Listen to what Jesus said, if you would. In John 5, beginning in verse 28, he said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. As you and I have noted, we see Jesus said in the same hour, all are going to come forth, not only the good, but also those that have done wickedly. They shall come forth not a thousand and seven years separated in time, but rather in the same hour. As you can see then, the Lord has taught a very different scenario than what is typically set before us premillennially. And as you and I have given some appreciation to it, doesn't that still remind us of the greatness and simplicity of what Jesus has taught? 
You see, there is going to be none of this tribulation seven-year period. There's not going to be this millennial reign here by the Lord on earth. Our scenario is far simpler than that. All are going to come forth when the great Son of God makes His second return. And He's going to return in the clouds, not setting foot on this planet. For you and I, as the faithful, shall rise to meet Him in the air. And then shall we ever be with Him. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. As you can see from this reference in John 5, 28, this isn't the only place that this discussion in truth is found. In Matthew, the 13th chapter, a very familiar parable to each of us in which Jesus spoke about this man who, what he thought, sowed good seed in his field. And so he had. But that night an enemy came and sowed tares amongst the wheat. And in the Lord's explanation, and upon the finding of the tares, the servants asked, should we pull up the tares? It was the master who said, no. Let them remain. For if you pull them up now, you will pull up the wheat as well. Let them remain till the harvest. In verses 30 to 36, when Jesus explained what that meant, he said, the harvest is the end of the world. Thus, conclusion, the righteous will coexist, cohabit, if you please, with the wicked until the end of the world, and then they shall be separated. There is no thousand and seven years prior to that time at which point they'll be separated. It shall be truly the end of the world. And then, of course, on that occasion of Matthew 25, then Jesus said on that occasion, there are the goats on the left, the sheep on the right, and they hear very different messages. May we at least pause at this point and assert to ourselves how important it is that though we do live amongst wickedness upon earth and we're surrounded with ungodliness and with those things that are not pleasing to God, may we not be those who live like it, approve it, or encourage it because we do not want to be numbered amongst those on the left on that day of judgment. But you'll notice as one gives some thought to those two truths, let us look at a third one. What else besides John 5.28 and that text of Matthew 20.28? What about 1 Corinthians 15 verses 23, 24, and 25? On that occasion in that place, we find, and you probably have noted that I've, to save up some writing, just used PM for premillennialism. But premillennialism, might we recall, asserts that the Lord's reign, R-E-I-G-N, is supposed to be in that thousand-year period. That's what we're told. It is supposedly the case He will return, set up that earthly kingdom, and then He will reign. However, might we give some thought to 1 Corinthians 15, because what was it the, that Paul wrote by inspiration on this occasion? On that occasion, you remember Paul, and I've tried to summarize it by saying, Paul asserted that Christ must reign until the last enemy is destroyed. But then he quickly writes, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Question, has death yet been destroyed? I think not. Look at any of the funeral homes in Putnam County. Try any one of them you like. We know death is still an occurrence. We know there are still those passing from the scenes of this life in that attribute you and I call death. Death has not been destroyed. Yet Paul said Christ must reign until death is destroyed. Conclusion, Christ must now be reigning because death hasn't been destroyed. 
you and I thus can conclude Christ is not merely to reign in some thousand year supposed reign later. He's reigning now. And he's reigning over his kingdom. Hebrews 8 verses 1 and 2 tell us. And in that he reigns over that kingdom. You and I are the citizenry of that kingdom. And how blessed we are to be Christians wearing the name of our king. Isn't it truly the case? 1 Timothy 6.15 He's the blessed and only potentate king of kings and lord of lords. Just as surely then as you and I are Christians wearing his name, we can appreciate he's reigning now. And that reign is such a great one, a tremendous one, far higher than any earthly pontiff on earth, of course. This gentleman, Jesus, the Son of God reigning at the right hand of the Father. You notice on these three occasions, we have noticed so many passages already that directly contradict premillennialism. But might we look at a fourth one? Another one that in fact is so very direct in its power. In John 6, verses 39, 40, 44, and 54, Jesus made a very interesting and thorough teaching. In fact, he set before his audience on that occasion the realization that the saints, the righteous, would be raised at the last day. Raised at the last day. Let me emphasize that if I might. That those who follow the Christ, that those who are prepared will be raised the last day. However, would you give some thought to what premillennialism teaches? Remember, it says that there is this rapture. Seven years later is the beginning of a millennium. And then a thousand years after that, Christ comes for a third time and closes everything out and eternity starts. So you'll notice Jesus said the righteous are raised at the last day. Premillennialism says there's another thousand and seven years yet to come. Now which is right? Of course, you and I know the answer. The Lord four times said, The righteous shall be raised at the last day. And if that's the last day, I think logically we can easily see there is no day following that one or else it wasn't the last one. Surely then we can understand the simplicity again of what the Lord has set before us. On that occasion, the Lord makes His next appearance. That, my friend, is it. You and I need to be ready to go then. There's going to be no rapture and later opportunity to get right. If we're not right then, if we haven't made our preparation then, then you and I will be found without and we'll be numbered amongst the goats on the left and we'll be eternally regretful of the foolishness of our failure to prepare. Jesus taught in Matthew 25 about five wise virgins and five foolish ones. All of them had brought some oil. However, the foolish had not brought enough in case the bridegroom tarried. And in fact, he did tarry. And it was not until a late hour he arrived, and yet the wise woke up, trimmed their lamps, everything was ready, and they went in when he came. But then the door was shut. Are we not then in a position to see that so many are deluded by thinking that there are going to be these future opportunities to get ready if I haven't done it now? The Bible doesn't teach anything of that sort. You and I are given an opportunity in this life. This is a time of preparation. May we use it wisely, and may we use it directed in the fashion that Christ has given us instruction. These premillennial passages that contradict so many things in premillennialism are those you and I could use quickly to call into question 
those things that so often are taught in these matters. One of the last things you might notice on that, I simply said these contradict that which premillennialism teaches. But on these four occasions, as we've attempted to look in easiness at what the Bible has taught, let us, in fact, also ask about a fifth one. Found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we notice beginning in verse 13 of that chapter, the inspired apostle directed some impressive thoughts to a group of people who were laboring under some confusion about the second coming. In fact, the books of First and Second Thessalonians, in its eight chapters combined, those books address very critically some issues that were troubling the minds of the Thessalonians. They were greatly bothered by what they had heard by others relative to the second coming of Christ. So bothered were they that Paul penned these letters by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, answering their questions and laying forevermore to rest some of those things that were troubling them. When we arrive at chapter 4, in fact, Paul encourages them, comfort one another with these words, verse 18. You'll notice by his usage of that phrase, they had been less than comforted by what some of the things that other teachers were telling them. What is it Paul taught them? Well, here's a synopsis of some of it. He said, in specifically in verse 16, there's to be three notable events. And when I say events, I mean these are all a part of the same set of ideas. He said there's going to be a great shout, and there's a voice of an archangel, and a trump of God, and those three things will accompany the second coming of Christ. Amazing, isn't it? It will be far from a silent event. It will be far from a secretive thing that few will appreciate or perceive. Notice, three things, a great shout a voice of the archangel, and a trump of God. Those things, as they sound and herald the second coming of Christ, will be an event that no one can possibly miss. In Revelation 1, verses 5 through 7, the writer John even reminded us then that, given the fact, again, all will rise, as we've already learned today, even those who thrust the spear through the side of Christ are going to be aware, present, and cognizant of the events of that day. Thus, as we appreciate the grand resurrection of that event, it truly is a monumental thing to imagine. As you notice in this passage again, it will not be any rapturous event in the way that premillennialism describes it. Not a secretive matter where some will whisk away and others are wondering where they went. Believe us. Believe the Lord. All are going to know what happens that day. In those kinds of matters, think, if you would, about some of the things we've seen in our study of this matter of premillennialism. As we have looked each week at some particular aspect of it, we've been reminded how that man, often perhaps in desire to set forth what seems right and what appears good, may well have deviated on so many ways from what this book has said. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. To quote Proverbs 14, 12. Thus, when you and I think about the end of time, or when we think about other matters that would be religious in character, such as the methods of proper worship, the opportunities afforded in the plan of salvation, the issues that relate to the church and its ordinances and its government, May we ever understand that it is this book and it only 
that has God's answers on those points. Men's speculations are fruitless. The ideas that some committee of men may have set forth is in fact a waste. Only this book has God's will and His plan in, re in relation to any of those pieces of information. In fact, as you give some thought to that fifth one we've just considered, let's look at a sixth one as well. Found in the Old Testament in Zechariah 6, beginning in verse 12. On that occasion, nestled in the heart of that prophecy long, long ago, that writer, Zechariah, who perverse stated more than any other Old Testament writer about the Messiah, His coming and His work, we find in Zechariah 6 a very clear portrayal of this fact. That when the branch, the anointed, the Son of God come, He would serve both as priest and as king. And He would do so simultaneously. Now contrast that to the premillennial idea. Premillennial idea again sets forth the fact that when that millennium starts, then he will reign as king. But he's not reigning now, so we're told. Again, notice what Zechariah wrote for us. He again said that the king and the priest would reign simultaneously after the order of Melchizedek, if we could borrow from Hebrews chapter 7 and 8. And might we then pose the following interesting conundrum. If it is the case then that Christ is not reigning now as king, then he must not be now a priest either. For Zechariah said it would be simultaneous. And where are you and I today if Christ is not our priest? That would then mean we have no priest. And that would also thus mean we cannot have any possibility or hope of having offering brought before God for your sins or mine. Friend, we're lost if Christ is not now a high priest. No wonder Zechariah said he's going to reign as priest and as king simultaneously. We've already learned today he's now reigning as king, and not shockingly, he is also our priest as well. Hebrews 3.1, Hebrews 8.1. And thus, as the Bible works together so harmoniously, it is interesting to see yet one more time how the cards that supposedly solidify and build premillennialism are nothing. The cards have fallen. There is, in fact, no basis to it at all in Scripture. As you and I have looked then at this sixth one, isn't it interesting and ever so comforting to see the Bible truth on the subject? We do have a priest now. He, in fact, offered a one-time sacrifice for your sins and mine, and he still sits as advocate for you and me before God, 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. And in that position, we have that daysman, Job 9.33, that Job never had. We have one that can plead our cause and carry our case before the God of heaven and do so effectively, effectually, and successfully. To that end, shall we not say, thanks be unto God premillennialism is false. Thanks be unto God that we have a scheme that's far better than that and one that is based on an everlasting, perpetual truth that will never be changed. Might we thus, even before we get to the seventh and last point today, even ask again ourselves the penetrating question, are you relying on that king and priest that has now already been anointed and set forth in that position? Or have you allowed your life to wander and meander elsewhere putting your trust in someone or something else. He is King of kings and Lord of lords.
And he is the only priest that God has ever ordained for this order and for this time. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 5 verse 10. In those matters and thoughts, one final consideration this morning. One other text found in the Old Testament that in fact speaks volumes about the whole notion of this premillennial idea that we have heard. As we look upon what it is, it's found in the very text that was read in our hearing earlier this morning. The closing verse of Jeremiah 22. If you'd like to revisit that text, it simply again reads as follows. Thus saith the Lord, Write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in, Ju in Judah. I would invite each of us to lay a bit of focus, a bit of interest, if we might, on some of the words found in that verse we just read. Write ye this man. We'll need to identify what man. Who is he speaking about? Childless. What does he mean by this? Namely, that that man shall not prosper in his days. In what way? For no man of his seed. It seems that that is an exceedingly broad and exceedingly direct statement. No descendant of this man, whoever he is, will ever sit upon the throne of David and rule in Judah anymore. When you and I ponder the history that had brought the children of Israel to that point in time, we well recall that Saul had been the first king of the United Kingdom of Israel, 1 Samuel chapters 8 and following. Following, however, his sin in 1 Samuel 15, he was removed as king and David was hand-chosen and selected by God to be his successor. And in David, at that point in his life, truly was a man after God's own heart. He, in fact, was appointed and did succeed Saul as the next king of Israel. Following him was his son Solomon. As you give some thought then to what happened following that time, the kingdom was rent asunder. It was split. Individuals weren't able to get along, but even more deeply than that, some had an interest in clinging to what God had said and others didn't. The kingdom was split. However, they each had kings. There were 20 in one kingdom, 21 in the other. And as the kingdoms and empires proceeded on through their history, we finally arrive at the time when that southern kingdom of Judah was about to its end. Just about to its end. In fact, the gentleman reigning on the throne at this particular time, as you can see, was a man recognized as Jeconiah. Other passages call him Coniah, same person. In fact, there are verses that identify they are one and the same. So whether he was called Coniah or in longer form Jeconiah, he was one of the last kings that Judah ever enjoyed in the flesh. Notice though what the prophecy again states. Write this man childless. No man of his seed will ever again reign in Judah on David's throne. So as you appreciate the far-reaching nature of that particular prophecy, that means from the time that Jeremiah wrote it, no matter how long the earth would last, no descendant, at least if Jeremiah was telling the truth, 
no descendant of Jeconiah could ever again reign as a king on David's throne in Jerusalem. Because after all, Jerusalem is in Judah. So what's our conclusion? In premillennialism, what is it that you and I have heard? We have heard that Christ is supposed to return and that he is supposed to reign on David's throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Notice what we just read. There's only one missing link. What if it were true that Jesus was a descendant of Jeconiah? If the Lord Jesus was a physical descendant of Jeconiah, that would then mean that he, if, Je if Jeremiah was telling the truth, could never reign in Jerusalem on David's throne. It would be an impossibility. And yet, when we, when we read Matthew chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, we find in the genealogy of our Lord, Jeconiah is mentioned. Jesus is a descendant of Jeconiah. And therefore, per the prophecy of Jeremiah 22, you and I can finally assert that Jesus is never going to reign on a physical throne in Jerusalem because he can't. He's a descendant of Jeconiah. And Jeremiah prophesied that would never be. You see, all along, every aspect of the premillennial idea is not supported by the Scriptures, is it? If this text is true, that forever forbids Jesus reigning on any throne of David in Jerusalem. It cannot be. Thankfully, you and I know that the Bible doesn't teach that it was going to be anyway. Again, he's going to return in the air, and that's as far as he will make it. All of us shall rise to meet him. And at that point, eternity, with regard to its judgment, shall begin. All of those who have placed in their hopes on some paradise, a utopia here on earth with a thousand years in it, they have mistaken and misplaced hopes. The Bible didn't teach it ever, and it still doesn't. In fact, as we come to the close of this lesson in today, how do we summarize it in a way that draws it fittingly to its conclusion? Perhaps this would be one way to do it. On so many of its particulars, the Bible contradicts premillennialism. And I trust that in our series of studies we have laid that doctrine to rest, and despite the fact we may hear of it, may we, with a tear in our eye, feel sorry for and attempt to correctly teach those who have been misguided. For it's true that many are sincere, but they're sincerely mistaken. And it's true that many have a degree of honesty, but they're honestly wrong because the Bible does not teach these things. And may we not place our hopes in them either. As our elders have encouraged us in this study and have been supportive of this series of lessons, and it's 13 so far, might we give some thought that it's my intent to finish it next Lord's Day morning. One final lesson on this whole subject, and at that point we've said about all that I know to say. As we have studied and looked at it, might we close this lesson today with an encouragement from the Word of God that all of us would place, would place our firm and devoted attention into the truth set forth in the Bible when it comes to the end of time. The very last verse in 1 Corinthians 15 encourages steadfastness in each of us. Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We have the assurance that labors in the truth of God are not in vain. Today, in what way are your labors directed? Are they directed in regard to the truth of God, or are they directed to what men have declared? 
what men have thought, what people have asserted, what books have said? Or are you in your position in life resting solidly and firmly upon that house spoken of in Matthew 7? Where, remember, the elements came, but it didn't fall. Why? It was founded on a rock. Is your life founded on a rock today? Meaning that you have heard and done that which the Scriptures teach? If we could be of assistance to you today in your obedience to the plan of salvation, recall that the Lord simply said that you need to hear what He has taught, you need to believe that He is the Son of God, you need to repent of your sins, confess His name in the hearing of others, and be baptized for the remission of sins. Passages, many in number, could be used to substantiate those things. If today we could be of help to anybody here in that regard, note the baptismal waters are warm and ready. Individuals would be excited to assist you in some way in those acts. If you have become a Christian and you have known what that was like, but you have long since forgotten what it meant and the eternal significance of it, come back today to your first love, won't you? God loves you. Christ loves you. He died for you. The Holy Spirit loves you. He sent you this word so that you would have no excuse. Today, if we could be of assistance and pray on your behalf, won't you let us do that? If in any way we can help, let it be known if you would while together we stand and while we sing.